0: Show you a better way Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. It's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is March twenty seventh, two thousand fifteen, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, your day where you make calls to eight six six sixty five. Think eight six 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 five T H I N K. For those of you without letters on your dial for whatever reason, the actual numbers eight uh, six 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 five eight forty four sixty five. You call, you'll get a recording. And uh, today, most of the calls that I selected are on, in fact, all of the calls that I selected in one way or another, are like agriculture, permaculture, homesteading. I didn't do that by design. I started at a particular point. I usually just pick a point in the week's calls when I screen them and just start there. And I go in order, and if the call's good enough, it gets on. And it's the only fair way I know to do it, and I pick different starting points each week. And this week, all of them were good, all of them were in a row, and all of them that were actually for me versus an expert counsel just happened to be on that subject when I got to my limit for the day. I was done. That's where I was at. So I decided this will be kind of a themed show. If you want to hear about other things, then you make your calls and ask about other things because this show is the show that is basically designed by the audience. I don't control who calls in about what. So anyway, that's going to be the main kind of theme of today's show. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy Jeff Gleason, well, you're going to get Berkey water filtration systems from the Berkey guy. That's kind of crazy, I know. But really, if you do not have a Berkey in your home yet, why not? It is the most cost-effective long-term way to make sure you have the best quality drinking water available to you and your family. If you live on municipal water, go ahead and get the under uh, the underside filters as well to get that chlorine, chloramine, and arsenic, other crap out of your water. If you're like me and on a well, you just get those big black elements on the top side. And uh, you can produce water for years on one set of elements. And uh, when you need new elements, go back to Jeff, get the uh, the primer bulb. That has made my life so much easier when it comes time to change out the uh, filters. I probably change out my filters more than you will because, well, my water is 250 parts per million of calcium coming out of the softener. That's pretty hard. It's almost hard enough that it wouldn't be miraculous to watch somebody walk on it. Uh, A little bit of a pun there, but really, seriously, it it is hard water, and it comes out of the Berkey, and it tastes so much better than it does out of the well, and even when it's gone through the softener. It just is a a much better experience for us. And I don't sit around and worry, did did something maybe contaminate my well this week or, or what have you? And if you're on municipal water, you know, by the time they give you that boil water advisory, how long has that been a problem? Think about it. Anyway, and there's all of other great stuff for your prepping needs at Jeff Gleason's website, directive21.com. Check him out today, Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. You're going to be an armed citizen? Well, be a trained armed citizen uh, for a variety of reasons. Safety is paramount when you're going to carry a lethal weapon, of course, but also performance is as well. If you're carrying a weapon on a daily basis, what you've said in addition to I have a right to and I shall exercise my right, you've also said that it is reasonable to expect that at some point you could be called on to defend your life for the life of others in a very stressful, bloody, dangerous situation. And at said time, not only might you have to defend yourself and others, you may have to make sure that somebody doesn't mistake you for a second bad guy and kill you. That's how serious it is to be an armed citizen in today's society. So you need top-notch training. I don't know a better place to get it than Fortress Defense Consultants and the awesome Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors. Learn more at FortressDefense.com. Next up, let us take a look at the year that was the episode 1544. We have the battle of the shirts and the audacity of running for president. We also have a little rough wooing for Scotland. And finally, the father of electrical engineering is born. Darn it. Um... Father of Electrical Engineering is interesting, but I am gravitating toward the Battle of the Shirts and audacity of running for president due to my take on the current world. Uh, Let me read it for you. A battle in July between several Scottish Scottish clans over a question of leadership becomes so heated, they pull off their plaids, a tartan wool cloth worn over the shoulder, and fight in their shirts. The battle takes place in the Great Glen, which is a major travel route through Scotland. The battle itself was caused by a power vacuum created when King James V of Scotland had several clan leaders arrested. When their second stepped in their places, one particular man, Ranald of Hens, was a little too humble for a Scotsman. Every time the fatted calf was killed in celebration, he would say, "'Chickens would be enough.'" Thus, when leaders returned, it would become a battle over who was best suited to lead the clans in the end. Ranald was not it. My take by Alex Shrugged. Ranald of Hens was a capable leader, but not sufficiently self-aggrandizing to lead the clans. This reminds me of the obvious esteem in which U.S. presidential candidates hold themselves. It takes real brass ones to run for that job, but if a candidate thinks that his opponent could do a better job, then he should step down and vote for that better person. In the past, I've seen presidential candidates act like placeholders, and I wondered why they hadn't stepped aside early to make room for someone else. Bill Clinton was a second-tier candidate who believed in himself. The first-tier candidate stopped that President George H.W. Bush, the elder, was unbeatable after Gulf War 1. So Clinton stepped in, and even with his liabilities, which were legion, he won because he believed in himself and because he lied his backside off. But if you can't take a joke, you shouldn't vote. Oh, I love that. I wish that was my quote. If you can't take a joke, you shouldn't vote. Wow, Alex, that is just top-notch there. Anyway... Um, here's my, my thoughts on this. <clears throat> this is not a reflection of what's wrong with the leaders of the world, though they are generally psychopaths. It's a reflection of what's wrong with the lead. You see, what this says is that people prefer psychopaths to lead them. It, it sounds to me like this Ranald of Hens would have been a perfect guy to lead his, his clan. In other words, I don't know if you really make. If you glossed over this, right? So when the fattened calf was killed, he would say chickens would have been enough. Understand that was for him. So when his clan would bring a fattened calf out, succulent, top-notch stuff, and and slaughter it and prepare a feast for him in celebration of his leadership, he say, I, I don't need all this. Which also means maybe someone else does. Maybe we could feed others with this. I, I would be happy with just chicken, which is a lesser meal. I don't need to be aggrandized all the time. But people tend to want the person that talks better of themselves than they really are. And that's because people have become the cattle. That's why. When people are treated like cows long enough, they tend to behave like cows. And in the world that we live in, the way I see it is there are two types of people. There are people that behave like cows... And people that behave like pigs. And in this analogy, friends, you want to be the pig. I know pig is used as an insult, but it really shouldn't be. How do, I mean, if you look at cattle and pigs, they share a common lineage up to their place in modern times for men as food and, and producers of food and, and livestock, etc. And that is both of them come from wild stock. Both of them have been domesticated and bred over the years to be better suited for use by man as a food product. And both of them fill that role very, very well. Okay. But the cow no longer seeks to go feral. They really don't. Cows are easily led. Cows We'll go walk right up to the door of a slaughterhouse. Cows enjoy being milked. That's you paying taxes, by the way. The cattle of the Maasai warriors of, of southern Africa are not only milked, they're bled. That's way too spooky of an analogy for how the citizenry of modern countries are treated. We are milked and bled until we're no longer useful and then put out in pasture to die. They call it Social Security. Just enough grass to not fall over, but when you do, no one really cares. After we've taken the best you have, throw you out. Good luck. And then there's the other animal, the lowly humble pig, the hog. The pig will go feral like that. Cows have kind of a hierarchy of their herds. They have a head bull. They have a head cow. They, they really acknowledge that head bull or cow. Pigs, eh, the lowest among them will shank the highest among them with a freaking tusk if they get in the way one too many times. And if they don't like dealing with a, a dominant boar, they just leave. They go somewhere else. They do what they please. You can fence them in, but if you leave a tiny gap in the fence, they'll escape. Those of us who seek to be left the hell alone, we're the pigs, We refuse to be fully and wholly domesticated. And no matter how domesticated we've become, give us a glimmer of freedom. And instead of yelling at you and running away from that open gate, we head straight out. And we don't just run to the next pasture. See, the cattle, will if they get out, they go until they find nice grass and they stop. And they stay there and they eat so they can be round back up, branded, milked, bled, and slaughtered. The pig heads straight through the field to the forest and vanishes. That's who I believe the people that create, crave freedom are. And the problem for people like Ronald of Hens is he tried to lead cattle when he was a boar. As boars, we need not lead cattle. We need to lead our fellow pigs. I know that sounds crazy, but that's our job. It's just an analogy. Don't take it too literally. But in that analogy, when we seek the freedom from oppression, we need not try to lead those who who, who want oppression. We need to lead those who actually seek liberty. And unlike the psychopathic leaders of the state who lead through legislation, we need to lead... Through action. Instead of leading from above, we lead from the front. We understand that leaders go first, but they come last. My take by Jack Spearco. And with that, let's go ahead and take your first call of the day.
1: Hi, Jack. This is D.H. from Colorado's Western Slope. My question is how to go about picking fish species to stock a fish pond with. Details. I currently have a 8-acre-feet storage pond on a flowing creek up here in the mountains in Colorado, about 7,000 feet. I've looked online, Google Foo. I've checked with the local university extension. I've checked with local fishermen. And I'm really just not getting the answers I'm looking for in terms of picking two or three or four species of fish that are going to result in my fish pond being permanently uh, stocked, and I won't have to restock it every year. So, um, based on all that, what would be the resources you'd use? What would be the species you'd look at? How would you go about it? Thanks, Jack.
0: Well, it sounds to me like you've done mostly the right thing, but you're probably thinking too much. Um, let's start out with the, the pond that you have. The, like, let's call this what it is. This is a lake, eight acres. Okay, I'm looking around my property of three acres. I'm thinking if that was all water, I could really have just about anything that will work in my climate work there and if I had water flowing through it so I had a natural exchange of oxygen I'd be really good and then if my climate was your climate with lower overall temperatures and high oxygen levels retained due to those low temperatures and low temperature of a moving stream going through it I wouldn't worry about it at all and then then if I had it two and a half times bigger than it is, I would be right now dancing on my roof, probably naked, celebrating my good fortune to have such a wonderful thing in my, on my property. So what can you grow there? Or what do you want? Um, but here's what I did. I just went to the Colorado state, uh, fishing, uh, and game website and pulled up the, the the brochure to see, well, what is in Colorado? What do they have limits on? And I'm going to go down through some of these species and give me give you my thought on them. Um, trout is obviously something very near and dear to most Colorado fishermen, and they have everything where you live. Rainbow, brook, brown cutthroats, etc., lake trouts, tigers, goldens, graylings, char, all that good stuff. Okay, so here's how I feel about that. It it is probably the case that the the two trout that would be most likely to to create um, thriving breeding populations in the water you're talking about would be your native cutthroats and brookies. And so if I was going to put trout in, I would go with those, okay? Uh, And anything else you want to put in, but I don't know how much chance you have of them turning into long-term breeding species. Um, People will tell you brook and cutthroat want to go upstream to to spawn. Yeah, well, so do white bass. And I know plenty of lakes down here where they they, they spawn uh, on gravel humps. So if there's structure and a pond of the size, there's got to be different structures and things. You can create them if they're not. Uh, If there's gravel, you're probably going to get spawning trout. And that's one option. So we're not going to get too hung up on that. Uh, Under salmon, we're just going to skip that. Whitefish, hey, if you have some you want to throw in there or whatever, they're a good bait fish. Um, Catfish, what I see in your state are channel, uh, black bullheads, blue, and flatheads. Um, The one that will breed like crazy is the one you probably don't want, which are black bullheads. Channels have an issue where they don't like to spawn a lot unless they have cavities to spawn in. Uh but those can be created pretty easily if you want to do that for them. And they'll probably find a way anyway. Um if there's any steep banks, they'll probably create their own holes to spawn in there. So if I was gonna put channel catfish in and I probably uh, catfish in I probably would, I would put channels. I think that you're gonna do a lot better getting a breeding population of channels than blues. Um flatheads, I, I-, I just don't see them as being a really viable option for um for the type of situation you're, you're you're putting them in, they are a very large predator. They're a very big fish, and they'll probably take more than they'll give. Where channels uh, are really a great game fish and can be trained to feed on pellets, by the way. So you can end up with some small population of them that you know are easy to harvest whenever you want to. Pikes, uh, I'd leave out. I wouldn't even put any of the, the northerns and muskies and stuff like that in there. You're putting in a major overstory predator in a place where you probably don't want it. Perch. I think this would be your, your go to fish for food in your climate. Yellow perch. I would actually design this pond or this lake to be a yellow perch fisherman's paradise. You can fish for them all year round. They are easy to catch in the spring when they're on spawn. They're easy in the summer once you know their pattern. They're a good ice fishing so You can even fish for them when the lake's frozen over. They are incredibly good eating. They are like small walleye. They get sizable quick. Um, they'll forage on just about any small bait fish, and they would be my go-to. Uh, if you want to throw some walleye in there, go ahead, but you're going to have a hard time finding them. Um, It's really kind of a small water for them to do well long-term and reproduce. Yellow perch will reproduce, and they will be a fish you can harvest over and over and over again. And once you get them established, unless you bring nets in, you're probably never going to fish them out. White bass, I was surprised to see white uh, or or bass. I was surprised to see white and striped bass live in your climate. Um, But the bass species that I would look to put in here are smallmouth. They fight pound for pound far better than largemouth. Uh, they're a good eating fish. Uh, they love crustaceans, so they're kind of another level of predator in your in your lake. So I would say you put any bass you want in there, but I would make the fishery primarily a yellow perch, smallmouth bass, channel catfish fishery. All right, sunfish, green, red ear, hybrids, bluegills. I think that any pond that can support bluegill should have bluegill in it. And I would look to your, you know, maybe copper nose bluegill or something like that to get a little bit more size to them. The challenge for you is in your climate, they're a very slow-growing fish, and they can get out of hand. That's why you want a good population of smallmouth bass in there to keep them in check because smallmouth bass will eat little bluegills like candy. Uh, crappie, black and white, I don't know if you want crappie or not, but that would be a good way to round out kind of your mid-story predatory thing. So I'm just pulling fish off of the, off the site. You know, they have some carp and suckers and drums and stuff like that. I I really wouldn't lean too much toward that. Uh, in a, in a, in a lake of your size, though some freshwater drum probably actually wouldn't hurt anything. And for all the maliciousness heaped upon them, drum are actually a really good eating fish when they're out of cold water. And they get really big. And they don't really compete heavily with a lot of the other things you'd have in there other than the smallmouths because they are very, very much a uh, a crustacean eater. But that's fine. There's plenty to go around. So those are the fish I would look at. Now, you need a really good, strong population of minnows, and in your climate, probably fathead minnows are what I would go with. And I would start with that. I'm I, I Probably before I would stock this thing at all, I would cram it with minnows for for. You know, I, I wouldn't say, you know, get, this is a great time to stock, so why not do it kind of all at once? But I would hold back a little bit on all those other fish, and I would go very, very heavy to the minnows and let them come up to the minnow population. There's probably a lot of native minnows in there already. If the damn thing's not full of crayfish, get all the crayfish you can locally. Set out crayfish traps. Dump them in your lake. Just millions of them. Uh Work on your food web from the... The genesis of the web, not from the outlying edges of the web. So when we want to make a forest or we want to make a farm or we want to make a ranch, we understand that if we really want to do this well, even if I'm growing cattle, which would be my bass or my trout, that first I need to grow grass. Really high-quality pasture so that I have a high-quality cow. And to grow high-quality grass, I'm really a grass farmer. But to grow the grass, I need a good soil balance, and I want to focus on the nematodes, the beneficial nematodes, the uh, the fungi, the bacteria, okay, the microarthropods, the 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 invertebrates, all the little life webs in my soil. If I get that right, everything works. So, in a in a lake of eight acres, there's probably a lot of things already going on there. But anything you can do to increase the 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 the, the, the phytoplankton, okay, the okay. zooplankton, your plant and animal plankton, um, you know, if you can find any kind of a minnow that does really really well in your climate, you know, if you're in the yeah. south, I'd say look toward like thin shad or something like that. I don't know how well yeah. they do. Golden shiner may do wonderful in your area, and they get huge. Uh, and they produce a lot of offspring. And if they're ever in excess, you can just cull and use them as fertilizer. They kind of look like a grass carp, but they don't get anywhere that big. They get about 14 inches as a giant one. Uh, we used to catch them all the time in ponds in Florida, uh, up to uh, you know about 12, 14 inches uh, all the time. Um, and they were great cut bait for catfish, so they served us multiple Function and I always thought they were southern fish. When I moved to Pennsylvania, I was surprised to find them living in a lot of farm ponds where people had put them in for forage for their bass. So that might be something to consider as well. But just don't overthink this and try to get as much life and diversity in there as possible. And if you put in, you know, the makeup that I would look at, which again from your 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 your, your predator species fish, your your fishery fish, it'd be something based on either cutthroat or brook trout. um uh, again, channel catfish, yellow perch, smallmouth bass, and bluegill. And then make sure there's enough forage for them. Let's say your trout don't breed. Oh, wait, eat perch and bass and bluegills. You know, and you'll end up with some really big trout floating around out there. I mean, it, you're not going to get them all, so that that's the approach I would take. Hopefully, that's helpful, and hopefully, it gives people a way to kind of think about this. If you're, you know, because if if you said, "How do I do this in in North Texas?", I'd have a whole different list of fish. Though so there'd be some commonalities. There'd be bluegill, okay, and there'd be channel catfish, and I'd probably go with largemouth bass that, that that are a little bit more tolerant of the warmer waters. But from there, I would just use what what's what lives here. What will breed in this area, and what is a good fish product? So, you know, then I'd bring in probably black crappie, and, you know, I mean, so it would all be similar but different based on the environment. I would not be dropping trout into into an 8-acre lake here. But I damn well, regardless of what people think, would put white bass in an 8-acre lake in Texas. Like, that quick. And I bet you, I just bet you, with enough forage species in there, and a couple gravel humps that I can create by dumping gravel in the water at the right depths, I bet you I could get them to spawn. And so, in the end, understand this, you give enough space, you give nature a chance, and as we learned in Jurassic Park, nature finds a way. Let's take another call.
2: Hey Jack, Jake Robinson from Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Got a question about planting fruit trees. I just purchased a home out in the county. As a side note, I'm getting out of an HOA. You knew. <clears throat> Anyway, this new home has five acres. Um, it's spring is starting to spring or sprung around here. Um, I'm not, I've am not. i got lots of other things to do before I can do a permaculture design on the place. But I would like to get a head start on fruit trees. So should I order some trees and put them in, a, and put them in pots, put them on the back deck, and grow them through the fall and then plant them in the fall once I get my design done? Or what would you suggest? I hate to lose out on a season of growing, and would that make sense? Or do you have some other ideas on how to take advantage of five acres and getting some trees going so that I don't uh, blow a whole summer? Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Love the shows.
0: Um, I... I'm only willing to do what Jake... just. First of all, Jake, congratulations as you begin your ascent toward becoming an anarchist, leaving behind the hell that is a conservative Republican HOA on your way to a journey into libertarianism. And it's this personal thing between Jake and I that hopefully he's getting a good laugh about it right now. But anyway, um, the only way that I'm willing to put a tree in a pot for half a season... There's actually two of them. One is if I'm getting something that's so unique and so hard to find that the only way that I can get it is, for instance, like when I go to Couple Creek Apple Orchard and I order these bench grafts and it's one little bud on a great big rootstock. And it's really best that I grow that out into like a, a one-year whip before I put it in the ground. And I'm going to grow that to fall and put it out. And I just think it's too harsh to put a little bitty budded fruit out there in the the grand wild wild of the wilderness Without constant attention and looking after and taking care of it and staking it and all that good stuff, you can put them right in the ground. There's places I would do it, but in this rocky, alkaline hell hole that I live on, I probably would not. I would. So it is exactly the case now. I have about 30 of those trees in five gallon pots with quick draining soil that will be shade grown until the fall and going in the fall. Alright, So I would do it for that. The other way I would do it is if I just cannot plant. Um, something this spring, and I know full well I will not be able to get it this fall, and I want to plant it this fall. So if there's certain varieties or species or things that I want to plant this fall, and I it's not because I can't get them in the ground, I just cannot buy them. They won't. So the Couple Creek thing's kind of the same thing, but a different issue there, right? So this would be, let's say, I, I wanted ten chestnut trees. And I decided this is not the time to plant them, but I could not get chestnut trees for whatever reason uh, from seed that had the first year of growth on them to put in the ground for the fall. And I didn't want to plant them this spring for whatever reason, and I just can't get them. That's the key. Then I would do this. Otherwise, if I'm going to plant in fall, I'm just going to source my plants in the fall. So it's more along the lines of figuring out, well, if you're going to buy anything, buy the stuff you know you can't get this fall. All right. I'll also caution you. I've been guilty of this. I've bought a bunch of stuff and not really had it prepared to go in the ground and not had a place for it, and you end up with it in pots, and it doesn't do as well. The problem with trees in pots over a summer is the roots grow really fast. They hit the edge of the pot, and they start going in circles. And unless it's a really small tree, you start to get a lot more problems with circling roots, girdling roots, and, and things that are going to take a lot of effort to untangle, put the tree into a lot of stress, and whatever you think you've gained in those four to six months, you've probably lost in stressing the tree. And it would have just been better off putting the tree in when you knew and had a place ready for it in the spring. Or another example would be that you would have just been better off sourcing the tree in the fall from someone who maybe digs it up out of a sand pit and ships it to you bare root, or does throw it in a pot, but it's not been in the pot very long. Roots have been pruned and whatever, and it's been managed professionally by a nurseryman. So in most instances, I'd say don't do what you suggested. But again, if there's something you know you're going to want to plant, you know what's going into your design, and you know you can't get it this fall, and you know you will be prepared to plant it by fall, then I can see doing this. And what you may even do is if it comes potted, and sometimes it will, get a bigger pot to put it in. Give the roots more space. But generally, the less time a tree spends in a pot, the better it does in the ground. Okay, So now, here's another thing you could do. One thing you could do is say, you know what, no matter what, I live in Tennessee. It gets plenty of rain. I know that most likely wherever you bought, you can dig a really deep hole, no problem. There's lots of dirt. And you can mulch cheaply. So what you might do is pick 10, 15, 20 trees that you know you're going to want anyway that aren't really part of like a food forest design, going down a fence line in a more intensive. I mean, think about it this way. You can do overstory planting in an intensive managed area right outside the back door, so to speak, 15, 20 trees, and you can design into those trees. They don't need swales, right? You can sheet mulch for 20 trees. Put those trees in the ground, and if you're not going to have a lot of time to mess with them this year, buy 20 30 40 however many trees you bought ear pans. if you buy 50 of them you get them for five bucks a piece cheap insurance policy can be reused next cycle when you put new trees in put ear pans around those trees and they're gonna need a lot less attention and they're gonna have a much higher survival rate so I think that like an aid like an era people have like a sticky point five bucks a piece Wow okay let me put it to you this way if you had two places you could buy trees from and supplier a, sold trees, that 70% of the people that bought trees said they also, or, or people that bought his trees said 70% of his trees survived. Okay? And Supplier B, all his reviews said that the planters were getting a 95 to 98% survival rate of his trees. But Supplier B was $5 more a tree. Would you pay $5 more a tree? And most people would say, well, duh, because they cost less over the average... Very simple math. But with the Irapan, you increase the survivability, and the Irapan can do it for another tree next time. It's a singular cost that can be used for multiple seasons. Now, how long will they last? I don't know. I know after one season, mine look just as good as they did the day I bought them. Will they look that, like that after a second or a third season? I don't know. But if they make it three to four seasons, and let's face it, they don't have to look great to do their job. If they make it for three to four seasons... If we get lucky and they make it for five, they cost me a dollar per tree. They're used on, so I would maybe consider like this hybrid approach: buy to pot and take care of what you know you can't get in fall, and then maybe find some things that hey, you know what? I know I can stick an apple tree there. Whether it it's going to be part of my grand scheme to rule the world or not, I know that's a good spot for one. But she most the shit out, throw an apple in the ground, stick an ear pan on it, and that way you'll get some trees. I mean, if you do that with twenty trees. That's a lot of fruit. That's a lot of fruit. That's a lot of blossoms next year for your bees, Jay, because I know you're a beekeeper. Hey, good on you for getting out of the HOA hell. And please continue your ascent, not descent. toward anarchy, let's take another one.
1: Hey, Jack. James out here in Hickory. Two questions for you. What do you think about using oak leaves as mulch on garden beds? Probably doing annual vegetables, that sort of deal. Also, I've got... Tons of fallen trees which are riding away out in the woods behind my house. And I was thinking about taking some of the ones that are a little more decomposed and loading it up in a trailer and dumping it on the beds and adding organic matter or whatnot. What do you think about that?
3: Appreciate the show. Bye.
0: Well, interestingly enough, the two things make me think of one statement um, as a unifying Connection between the two. Fungus is gold. Fungus is gold. The more fun, you know, beneficial fungal activity you get going on in soil, the better the results you get for everything that you do. If you have soil with healthy fungal hyphae in it, I'm not talking about some kind of weird fungus that destroys a plant, right? Which, Usually they're not even funguses. We call them funguses, and they're really a different type of a, of a blight or something like that. And they're not they're not the fungi that we're looking for in the forest. They're not the fungi that we're looking for, right? For you Star Wars fans, um, you, you almost can't help but have it do better than anything around it that doesn't have it. The, the fungi form information highways, and they form nutrient highways, and they form water highways. And they do that in different ways. So a plant that's being attacked by a pest will biochemically alter itself. It will do something to change its pH. It will do all types of things to defend itself from a a pest. But generally speaking, once attacked, it's too late. It's like a desperation move. But if the plant knew in advance that the pest was coming and did it before, it might ward off the pest. So science has actually figured out that when fungus is active in soil, that plant A gets attacked and plant B, C, D, E, F, G, all connected through the fungal information highway are alerted by the, through the fungal, like the fungal uh, internet. Hey, aphids are here and they change before they get attacked and they survive. Where if you remove the fungus and plant A gets attacked, B, C, D, E, F, and G don't do anything. They just sit there until they're attacked and it's too late. So the fungus does that for you. Um, From a standpoint of nutrient, they take nutrient from all of the exudate actions that happen in the soil, and they make it available to the plants that they interact with. And from a moisture standpoint, fungi will actually interact with the roots of plants and almost become like an extended root system, not only holding hydration in the soil but actually exchanging moisture with the plant in exchange for nutrient, which will take some of those nutrients and give them to other plants. So fungus is gold. So what does that have to do with anything? Well, all that rotted wood, what's rotting it? Fungus. And one of the greatest things for your soil is oak leaf mold. Moldy, rotting oak leaf. So you can just take the oak leaves and put them right on there. But if you take your oak leaves and run them over with a lawn tractor or a lawnmower and make them shredded up, and you make them in a big pile, and sort of, kind of, sort of compost them by keeping them wet and in the shade for a while and turn them once in a while, they won't go into a fast, hot compost because it's almost all carbon and very little to no nitrogen. But they'll start to get a fungal interaction going on. And you can keep them light and fluffy. And then you, So you can just use them straight away, but if you'll do what I just said at the same time, put someone aside to do this with, you'll get this great fungal inoculant. And if you add to that all this rotting wood, you're even better off now I noticed you didn't say bury it like hu culture good not everybody that does something anywhere needs to bury wood and make hugo culture It's a specific application for a specific thing but rotten wood that's wonderful and I would look for the stuff that you can almost break apart with your hands and crumble that's the stuff I would be picking up the stuff that maybe if you can't crumble it you can take a a, a, a mule maul or a sledgehammer and and hit it and it'll break and it'll crumble into pieces. You know, about the size of like, uh, like about the size of a I don't know, ear corn or smaller. And I would spread that stuff everywhere. That's gold. That's gold. That's that is a simple method of IMO capture. IMO being indigenous microorganisms. You're taking the fungi and and, and the the, the micro bacterium and all of the things that exist in a healthy forest in your climate, right in your backyard and you're inoculating your soil with it. I don't think you can go wrong with a combination of process. So take your wood, crumble it up, spread it all around your garden, cover it over with with oak leaves as mulch. Um, try to keep them fluffy, though. The problem with oak leaves is you've used too many, and they're not shredded. What happens is they kind of paste together like shingles, and eventually they become form, form like this net, and, and eventually it becomes very, very good, but for a time they can actually shed a lot of water off the ground and once the underlying ground dries because it'll hold it in for a while but once it dries it's hard to get water in there so it's it's better to shred them a little bit again just a uh, a lawnmower or they make leaf shredders like they call them leaf and uh, and branch shredders like small ones for like 100-150 bucks you get them on Amazon and they're basically like inside them is like a uh, like a string like a weed whacker uses and they're terrible They're horrible, absolutely F all horrible for any sticks and twigs. But if it's just pure leaves, they just do a great job. The other thing that works is they make these things that look like leaf blowers, but they're leaf vacuums, and they shred and bag leaves. If you have a lot of leaves, I might get one of those. I don't think they're about a couple hundred bucks. And, uh, you know, you just go vacuum all your leaves up, and it compresses them into these bags. My neighbor had one in Arlington. He would do his whole yard and he'd set these bags out, and he used, it looks like a bag of leaves that normally would weigh nothing, and you go to pick it up, and it feels like there's two bales of straw in there, or really two bales of hay. It's heavy, densely packed. And I used to, he'd put them out, and I'd just take them and dump them in a pile in my backyard and use them as mulch. Um, so that's, that's the approach I would take with this. Busting up the wood, busting up the leaves, and encouraging the fungal activity, because not only do you get a mulch then... You get this incredible fungal inoculation. Do that for a couple seasons and watch what happens. Uh, it, it will blow you away over time. And even if you don't get an initial big bang out of it, over time you will. It, it, it is You are charging up a major battery bank when you're doing this. Let's, uh, great ideas. Let's take another call.
1: Hey, Jack. Jeremy in Birmingham, Alabama. I've been listening to a lot of your shows lately on just planting shit. Who cares if it's your yard? Who cares if it's your property? Um, who cares if you're going to see the, the the fruits of your labor? Just plant it, and I completely agree. So I back up. My house back up to uh, woods. I live on like an acre of an acre, using most of my yard for other stuff and for plants that I already have in the ground. But I thought, you know what? What, uh, what better place to plant stuff than, you know, just beyond my property in the woods? It's, uh, the drain for the neighborhood. They're, you know, the, all the street drains drain through there. They're never going to do anything with it. So plant some stuff. But my thought was, well, what grows? What grows? Sure, I can throw some nuts out there and I'm sure they would, um, the trees, they would uh, plant some nut trees and, and they would grow just fine in the woods. But apple trees? and eh, probably not. Maybe on the, on the edge of the woods. Um, so I just wanted to get your opinion and see what you thought. Uh, what would grow best? Well, what are some good uh, tactics for for planting stuff out there? I know you probably say it depends, it depends, it depends. Uh, but I just kind of want to hear what Jack would do. I've probably got several thousand perennial seeds that I'm just going to sit out there and see what happens. But um, anyway, just uh, thought it would be uh, a good topic and, and look forward to maybe hearing um, hearing your thoughts on it. Thanks, brother.
0: Okay, so it sounds like the area is mostly wooded, so you definitely want to look either for the glades, which are the open spaces within the woods, which are great places to do this, or the edges. Now you say, well, apple might not grow. Apple is a very low-risk thing when it's not really important to you whether it makes it or not, and you take 12 apple seeds out of a apple from the store and stratify them for 60 days on a piece of paper towel in a Ziploc bag and put them in the ground, and whatever grows, grows. So... I wouldn't say don't grow apples. Why not? I mean, you're not trying to grow Red Delicious or, you know, Macintosh or something like that in this kind of situation. And most of your apples that you would grow from seed produce a good apple. It may not be the greatest apple in the world. It may not be a commercially viable apple, but it's an apple you'd eat. You'd certainly make cider out of it. Deer would certainly eat it. If you were starving to death, you'd eat it. It probably makes a good cider. I mean, there's, like, a lot to go with there persimmon grows well in in your part of Alabama there's a lot of different trees that would grow well um, autumn olive would grow well I mean blackberry on the further edges these are all things that are easy to propagate if you have blackberry on your property well take cuttings and propagate cuttings you basically have free blackberries put those cuttings out after they're well rooted now the thing is you're putting when you do this you're putting plants into a somewhat more harsh environment it sounds like you got some Uh, passive irrigation going on there with water flow and stuff, so great, great. But you worry about people walking on it, trampling it, animals walking on it, trampling it, and animals eating it. So you can take a cue from one of the little projects we've got going in this spring. We have this clump of oak trees and some other trees that are just to the west side of where we're putting our cider orchard in. And it is a great little shaded refuge for the ducks in the hot summer to go in there and be shaded. So I went in there and threw like two bales of straw down before we got rid of the last of our chickens. And they went in there and tore all the straw up and spread it out, made a nice little soft mulched bed. And we can throw some more in there if we want to and let whatever happens, happens in there. And it might be a great place for mushrooms to just spontaneously pop up, especially if you inoculate with strephoria. So it's a nice little place. Now we have all this cut up pieces of, of trimmings from all these oak trees we've cut down or trimmed off. And it's really bushy and bunchy, and it's not really great for a, 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 a wood chipper unless you get like an industrial, big-ass, tow-behind-a-truck shredder. You need something like that. It's, it's so hard. It's old. Well, what do you do with it? Well, my wife made Fort McDuck. Remember when you were a kid and you took, well, some of us when we were kids, and we went outside and played and did stuff with our imaginations. One of the ways you made a fort when I was a kid is you just took all cut down branches and boughs and stuff. We even made them... When I lived in an apartment complex, we might even do this using Christmas trees because everybody threw their Christmas tree to the dumpster and we just drug all the Christmas trees off in the woods. God, I grew up not that long ago. It seems like forever when I think about this and how little kids do like this anymore. And basically, you just surround an area with brush and then you leave an opening and inside that opening you go and there you're inside a fort. So we made Fort McDuck like that. So she made this like circle that has an opening right next to the fence where the apple orchard is on both sides against the fence on the east side and it just makes this bow-shaped crescent right around the drip line of these trees. What does this have to do with what you're talking about? Hold on, I'll get there. So I have tons of things like autumn olive that I can plant that are productive, that'll come up, that are hardy, that'll probably survive even with some minimal irrigation. A couple times a year, spray the ground down to keep them from drying out too much. But if the ducks are constantly eating them and pulling the leaves off them and walking on them, they may not make it. So what you do is this brush pile that we've created, every couple feet, pull a hole in it in the dead center, dig a hole down there and stick, let's say, an autumn olive in there or stick a locust tree in there or stick a blackberry in there and maybe go autumn olive, locust, blackberry, autumn olive, locust, blackberry. And and Fort McDuck eventually becomes a grown hedgerow of edibles, and fodder, and other great stuff. And why does it survive? It survives because there's this very loose, sticky brush pile all around where this thing's growing. And if the brush pile's, let's say, two feet high, and it's spread out, and all the leaves, of course, off the dead branches die, so the sun can get in there, but it's sheltered, that plant can get up to two feet high. If I wanted it to get up to three feet high... I would just build the pile three feet high and that plant is going to race up that first two to three feet looking for the sun and it's protected. You might wonder, well, how did this guy figure this out? Observation. So we have a brush pile somewhere, uh, not a big one, just a little one, a little sticky brush pile of this stuff that I was lazy and didn't put away. Finally, I get around, that's got to go. So I move it and the grass is two feet tall there. And once you move it, there's like this clump of tall grass. And the ducks just go in and hammer it. And you're like, I see. They don't want to go in there when all of that brushy, sticky stuff's there. So with your gorilla gardening, I think if you're doing bushes, trees, vines, that is a way to get them up and protect them. Because there's like all this dead matter that's not worth eating. And it's just easier to walk around. And unless something in there is really lush or I'm really, really hungry, I'm just not going to bother with that. So, you know, then you can start looking at what are the things you can grow. So apples, pears, pawpaw should do fine there. Like you said, nuts, whatever you want to grow. But I would think about creating these little, you know, just probably stuff laying on the ground. Just pile it up and make it sort of donut-shaped with a very small hole and plant into that donut. And that will protect it until it gets up so you're not watching it and worrying about it. And like I said, with apples, you could stratify six, eight, ten apple seeds, put them all in that hole, and go back once in a while, and if one's really doing a lot better than his buddies, just cut the other ones with a pair of pruners and let it go. You'll also be creating a mulch and a shaded environment for the roots, and it'll hold moisture better, and you're emulating nature. So that's kind of a little add-on, ad hoc thing I would do. And the other thing is anything with seed, like any kind of uh, self-receding annuals, um, anything that's going to be like a perennial herb or something like that's going to go from seed consider seed balls, Fukuoka style so they're rolled up in clay and mud and you throw them out there when it rains they melt in uh, and then you know, there's nothing wrong with self-reseeding annuals like if you threw a couple handfuls of amaranth out there in the spring you'd probably have amaranth showing up in the edges forever it'll naturalize and I, I realized I could get a pound of of amaranth seed at, uh, like, Whole Foods or Sprouts or whatever for, like, two fifty, in a little clamshell, and it's like a golden amaranth. Just throw it wherever you want amaranth. Cheap. Millions of seeds for a few dollars. Get creative with this stuff because you can't afford to be spending a lot of money for gorilla gardening. And then, again, learn grafting. If you happen to look out there and see, oh, there's a crab apple, Graft graft known varieties of apple onto it. No one's going to care. I mean, they might, but do it when they're not looking, and no one's going to care when it... when it Like, they're not even going to know what it is when it starts producing. Or if you have, you know, chokecherry, real chokecherry, generally you can graft known varieties of cherry and maybe other prunus fruits onto them. Um, but, but go from seed. Go from seed, let it go wild, and just see what happens. And then pay attention, too, because you might learn something from it. Uh, pawpaw is another one I think it would be good. Pawpaw and persimmon... You build your little donut brush mound, throw a few seeds in there, and let nature take its course. Let's take another one.
4: Hi, Jack. This is Erica in northern Virginia, and I'm calling with a question. What are some edible perennials that will produce food in the first one to three years? Here's the background. We're currently leasing a property while we save up to buy our own place, and we have about three years on our lease. Uh, though we may stay an additional year after that. Right, we don't mind leaving behind some edible perennials, but we would like to get the best bang for our buck, considering we are trying to pay off debt, save money for our own place. So we're looking for some edible perennials that will be productive while we live in our current location. Um, if, we'd also like if they would be easy to propagate, maybe from cuttings or from seed that would be produced within that first couple of years. And it would be a bonus if they are in some way decorative. As we all know, um, know, landlords don't always support food plants, per se, but uh, if they're more showy, then we won't have as much trouble leaving them behind and not having to cut them out before we leave. Looking forward to hearing your answer. Thanks for all you do.
0: Mainly, you're looking to go then with berries and herbs are are your main things that will do well for you. So, uh, for instance, if you plant oregano in most of the country, it will winter over and become perennial. Well, you can start cutting it. Literally, if you bought established plants, you could cut some to use before you put it in the ground. Um, Sage is another thing that's perennial. You can get action out of right away. Your perennial onions, your perennial chives, um, leeks can often be made perennial so you're kind of you go into your perennial vegetables type thing if you have a confined space or you're willing to do the work that's necessary, uh, Jerusalem artichokes technically an annual but they function as a perennial these are all things that you can get yields from in year one going into year two and three, now you're to your berries, strawberries, well established plants or crumbs generally will produce for you in the second year uh, definitely in the third Blackberries, raspberries, etc., generally second to third year, you're getting a decent yield off of. Um, Your best yields, even with those types of things, are four, five, six, seven years out, but you can can get something from them. Uh, Elderberries will often produce in their first year with their well-established plant, Um, they're not really a great edible, but they're a great medicinal, and they're a great use for things like making wine and what have you, though you'd have to plant quite a few of them to get a significant enough yield to matter. Seaberry will usually bear in its second year. Um, Goji berry, I've had gojis bear a couple berries in their first year if it's a good quality plant, and they bear heavily their second year. Goomies and autumn olives will bear their second year, but you see where I'm at, I'm all at berries. I have Nanking cherry. And today is Jack Vindication Day on so many things, from snake poop to Monsanto and not being willing to drink Roundup, even though they say that they can, more on that on Monday, Um, to Nanking Cherry. So I planted Nanking Cherry here, nobody thought it would grow in Texas, it's too hot, I planted a whole bunch of it in really shady spots, none of that did really well, and the one I just said the hell with it and stuck it out in the sun, as long as it got irrigated, it has set fruit. This was a tiny little plant, something you could hold in one hand, and this year it's like you could still hold it in one hand, but it's pretty big, it's like bushy, and it's got fruit set on it, so that's second year, and this is not the best place for them. Hansen's Bush cherry should set fruit by a second to third year, um so they're still willing really, they call them a cherry, but they're more in the berry world. so these are all things that you can plant that are perennial that you can get relatively um quick yields from. Blueberries, second year. Uh, a lot of times if you go to the like nurseries and box stores, you can find blueberries with fruit on them and uh, get a little bit of a yield your first year off of them, though you would generally be better off taking this brand new plant and putting it in the ground, and now it's gone through stress and it's had to adapt and just pulling all those green berries off and throwing them on the ground and, and letting them rot and make that plant put all of its energy into establishing its roots and its bushiness and whatever, and it will really blow up for you the following year. Um, I have had trees fruit in their first or second year. I've got trees right now setting fruit that are two years old. So if you buy mature bare roots, uh, one and a half, two and a half, uh, let's say two and a half year old trees um, that are in good shape, a lot of times they will bear for you. I put a peach tree in last fall, last fall, not the fall we just had, um, and it was a, it was a tree from Walmart, a $10 clearance tree, a red glow peach. I put it in the ground in the fall. I really did a good job of unbundling the roots and, and what have you. I gave it a good inoculation of fungal, uh, stuff and a good sheet mulching and it was in a really loved spot. But that spring I got five peaches. I know, big, what, well, five, but I got five peaches. In the, it, it was only six months after I put the tree in the ground, it was setting fruit. And seven months I was eating it. Five only, yeah, but now I'm in the second year with it now. And I think the thing's gonna set fruit like crazy this year. It's covered in blossoms, and the blossoms in the morning are covered in bees. So some of your trees can produce. You're just you are leaving them behind for the next person, but that's not a problem. And if you put these other things in with them, you may find that you really don't mind that you're leaving them behind. And If you take all the stuff I just gave you and plant it into a kind of nice little edgy permaculturist environment with a few trees and you do that in a way that looks really good not only to the permaculturist but also to Susie Homemaker that drives a soccer mobile, Um, you you might put in $500 worth of plants this year and you might get a little bit out of them over the next three to four years and it might significantly increase the property value. But I think you said you're renting or leasing, so that may not be the case. But for others that are are thinking that way, you know, I'm three to four years out, I'm going to sell this house, that type of a small perennial-based system, the appraiser that appraises your house isn't necessarily going to put that into the appraisal, and it won't necessarily increase the market value of your home. Um, so there's still that effective cap on your home. But remember what I always say about selling a piece of land or a house. Every buyer has a budget. Every buyer is looking at properties within their budget. All you have to do to be immediately sucked up off of the available market is be at least 1% better than everything else in your price range. And that's one of those things that pushes the 1%. So you got better countertops, there's a 1%. You got better looking cabinets, there's a 2% you got this perennial food-based system in the backyard that looks easy to maintain because it is. That's 3%. You're done. That house is selling like that. And trust me, I've sold two of them like that in the middle of recessions because there's always buyers, buyers always have budgets, and they're always looking to do the best they can with the budget they have. It doesn't matter that the house down the street is 10%, 20% better if it's out of their budget. It only matters... Is it better than what's in their budget? That's the magic to selling property. And it's sad to me that most real estate agents don't know that. Um, yeah, you can put it on a candle and bake some cookies and throw out some potpourri and stage the furniture right. And, and that, that helps a little bit with a buyer being able to see themselves in the property. But it's the one percent, it's the 1% that sells the property quickly to a person who will fight the next person that wants to buy it. Because they know it's the best they can do with what they have. And that, anybody in the short term situation with perennials, yes, think about planting trees under whose shade you'll never sit. But also think about how can I stage this out to where three, four, five hundred dollars worth of planting and a little bit of care gets me some food short term, but makes my house far more marketable long term. And we should all be doing that whether we plan on leaving or not. It's part of the exit strategy that everybody that has the liability that is property ownership should make part of what they're doing. Let's take another one.
4: Hey, Jack, this is Heather, erroneous on the forums. Um, hey, I've got a question that may be best answered by a couple of of expert council members. Um, I don't know, maybe Ben or Darby. Um, my question has to do with um, we're putting in a farm pond. Um, we are at elevation We're in Colorado. Uh, we're going to have about, I'd say, probably 500,000 gallon pond, and I'm looking to f- to figure out if I can build an aeration system myself. I've seen a lot of videos out there, so I don't know. Maybe maybe if we could get uh, get some specs from Ben and Darby on how to size something like that, and I don't know if if my favorite Stephen Harris would like to weigh in on how exactly I would spec out building that thing. So any help you give me would be appreciated. Thanks for everything,
0: Jack. Bye. All right. So I, I sent this to Ben. I, I This is not really Darby's world. Dar, Darby is not a, a pond and dam builder. Uh, ben is, and we'll see what Ben comes back with. But my initial reaction is you're in a, cold, a cool, cool to cold climate. The The body of water is significant in size. Properly designed, it probably doesn't need hell nor hide end of an aeration system. If you wanted to, you live in a windy environment as well. A simple windmill turning over a very small amount of water whenever the wind blows would do a lot to give you what you're looking for. And I don't mean a big giant one that can pump water to the high point of your land. I'm talking about something with a simple scoop and drop type of arrangement set up. Uh, would probably be more than what is necessary, if anything is at all. I would take the sepulcher approach to this, and I, I, I would look to basically build a pond with a significant shallow zone and a significant deep zone. And by that I mean that the difference between the average depth would be greater than 50%. So if your shallow zone was two feet, your deep zone would be at least four. And I'd rather go to a two thirds, one third. So if you had a two foot shallow zone, the average, not the deepest spot, the average depth of your deep zone, okay, would then be six feet. If you do that and you, you keep the shallow, to at least one-third of the pond and not greater than 50%, you are going to get natural stratification of temperature in the water, and the water will naturally move and create current and turn over, and you'll get plenty of air. You, you won't have a stagnant pond. It just won't happen. So if I had an average depth of three foot for my shallow zone, right? So again, this is a third of the pond is about a three-foot average depth and I had a nine-foot average depth of at least another third, so two-thirds shallow and one-third deep, or flip it around, one-third shallow and two-thirds deep, you're not going to have a problem. And if you get enough plant life going on in there, and plants that are you know, perennial-based aquatic plants that provide oxygen, um, and get some fish activity and some plankton activity, with the size pond you're talking about, you probably don't need anything at all, especially in your climate especially in your climate. Uh, you're talking about a climate where even when it does get in the nineties, it's still dropping into the sixties at night or cooler. Uh, you're talking about a climate where you have a lot longer of a winter in, in reality than a summer. If you're doing this here, it's a much bigger concern. I mean, we're, we're at a point now it's, it's not even April yet. And we have ponds starting to green up already. Um, and, and we're not looking at our first frost until many times Thanksgiving. That's a long time for, for a pond to warm up and heat up and have to hold oxygen at higher water temperatures and all. You guys will probably see frost, um, and enough to freeze the edges of a pond into, into May, maybe early June some years. And you're going to come back into your frost season by September. This just doesn't seem like there's a problem there to me. Now, maybe there's something I don't know. Maybe this thing's going to be a lot more shallow because of the landform, and you just can't make it deep anywhere. And this is going to be a big shallow puddle. And for some reason, based on talks to your contractor, installer, excavator, whatever, it can't it can't make it deep. Okay, then maybe we need to look at at aeration. But I think that honestly, you're, you're, you're a, a windmill. In your climate, it's probably going to do more than you would need no matter what. But, but half a million gallons is not a puddle. It's not a giant lake or anything by any means. But, um, I mean, we're looking at something in the neighborhood of a hundred by 180 feet, uh, in size and at least four feet of depth at, at that range to get up to a half a million, um, uh, what do you call it, gallons of water? Let me, I'm going to run a calculation. Let me, hold on, I'm going to pause and do this, guys. So my guess was 100 by 180 at four foot of depth. Uh, I'm on a pond calculator here, and this says it would give you 540,000 gallons. I all about 40,000 gallons. So let's do 100 by 160 at a four foot depth, 480,000 gallons. So you're looking at something that is in the neighborhood of uh, 35 yards, by 40 yards, I mean, we're talking a a, a, a a significant portion of an acre there. We're talking about a – there's a lot of lots out there that aren't 100 by 160 feet with a house on them, right? So it's not a lake. It's a pond, but it's probably not insignificant in, in its volume. And if we condense that, if we – Let me run another calculation real quick so I'm not talking out of my ass here. So um, what I came up with was like something in the neighborhood of 80 feet by 100 feet with an average depth of 8 feet. Um, That's significantly deep, right? And again, that's average depth. So that gives you plenty of room to have part of it be 8, part of it be 6, part of it be 10 and have that that plunging depth so that you get turnover. But have some level of a tail of shallow water, something in a 2-foot range, (laughs) And you're going to get these natural convections. Because water does something that nothing else does. Nothing else that we know of does the following. It becomes denser as it gets colder, which everything does, until it freezes. And just before it freezes, it becomes less dense and floats on itself. If that didn't happen, there would be no life on the planet that we can think of anyway. Because the oceans would freeze from the bottom up and lakes would freeze from the bottom up, and rivers would freeze from the bottom up, and we'd have a snowball earth. It is only the fact that water breaks the law that everything else follows, which is it just becomes denser, 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 and then has this little place where it flips. And what that means is as water gets colder, it sinks, but as it heads toward freezing, it rises. And it creates two phenomenon in large lakes every year called spring and fall turnover. And micro versions of this can happen throughout the year. And that's what we're trying to create with that type of a design. So unless this is going to be an oval, uniform depth thing, you're probably not going to need anything. Now, again, you might have had to design it that way. So we'll see what Ben comes back to us with um, on his thoughts on this. But with that, let's go ahead and take another one. And I think this will be the last one of the day.
3: Hey, Jack, Aaron in Colorado. Um, my question is more of a, just something I wish I could sit down and have a beer with you and just chat about. But um, I, I have an opportunity, I'm in the process of contracting to purchase a company that has uh, most of its history in uh, traditional commercial ag, poultry, swine, that kind of thing. Um, They have since diversified into a lot of other areas, waste management, some safety-related equipment, that kind of thing. Um, How would you – I found myself with a struggle, and so I'm curious, I guess, to hear, how would you kind of reconcile the fact that I am adamantly opposed uh, to that commercial ag model, and and after – I was just listening to your food sovereignty, sovereignty – um, podcast and and uh, you know I've had chickens I've had quail like I, I am I get that like that feels right that feels good and and big egg feels bad right so how would you reconcile a being part of a organization let alone owning an organization that that had its roots and still had a big foothold in the poultry supply the commercial poultry supply industry um Anyway, curious to hear. I don't know if this get
0: on. Just curious to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Uh, my initial thought is, what a great opportunity. I mean, uh, let me put it to you this way: if someone came to me and said, "Hey, look, what if we got enough people together to buy controlling interest in Monsanto and brought Jeff Lawton's vision to life of turning the budget of Monsanto?" toward the actual production of sustainability. If we took those billions and billions of dollars that they make by destroying the planet and turned around and used them and harnessed them in an economically viable way to use genetic research uh, on, on steroids, so to speak, without necessarily genetic modification but through things like gene sequencing that Monsanto is doing and gene predictability analysis and choosing which plants to save seed from and accelerating natural selection and and doing things like that to actually create sustainable agriculture because we would have control of it because we have enough money to purchase them and to change the, the direction of the rudder of the ship. I'd say where are we getting the money from? Because let's go do that, okay? So on a much smaller level, it sounds like you have an opportunity to do that. Now, the conundrum will come into this. You have a division of the company that's engaged in activities that you don't like that's profitable. And if you just switch off that division, then all of the people that are employed by it go without work. They all get pissed off. They all go to a competitor. They all go to work for them. And the people that were buying from you just start buying the same crap from somebody else. That doesn't really work. So what if you took this and began to move the udder by degrees until such time as you build a division based on the sustainable side of poultry? There's a lot of people out there doing poultry that do so sustainably. There's a lot of people that simply bought a book by Joel Salat and said, oh, I can do that, built some chicken tractors, and went to town. There's a whole market out there that's largely unserved. So it seems to me there's opportunity there. Now, exactly how, what opportunity? I mean, in the end, it's coming down to a If I'm buying a business, I'm looking at a balance sheet. I'm looking at an income statement. I'm looking at forecasts. I'm looking at what is the company's track? I mean, I'm back to business here, right? If the company says, well, we're forecasting next year's revenues to be X, Y, Z. Well, I want to see all the forecasts from all your regional heads that did this in the past. How accurate was their forecasting in the past, right? Because are they they bullshitting you? What's the the Black Memorial rating for the valuation of the business? I mean, in the end, is this business profitable so I have something to work with? And I'm also going to have to be realistic and know I can only change things so fast. You come into a company that's successful – you try to change too much too fast, and you just made a successful company unsuccessful. And in the end, we do keep scoring business with money. So back to Monsanto. If somebody handed me the reins of Monsanto and said, what are you going to do now? Stop all GMOs? Ugh, we make billions of dollars every year with those. We have to come off of those over time. And the whole entire agricultural system in the United States is now built on this. right? So if we shut off the faucet... ConAgra and Baird do really good for a few years. A lot of people starve. Uh, We got a big problem, and we don't really help our cause in the long term. So, with that being the case, I have to figure out a way to exit strategy this business unit. How do I move this company in the right direction without running the ship aground, right? So, if I have a ship at sea and it's steaming along a coastline, and I just cut the rudder too hard, too fast. I can tear the ship apart simply by doing that. I can capsize the ship. I can run the ship aground. There's all, all different ways that if I am too forceful with the rudder too fast, on too big of a ship moving too fast in the, the wrong direction, that I can make it worse. I can create a power vacuum. right? So if I just use my finger to sink Monsanto into the ocean the problem that, that Monsanto has created will not go away. They're not the problem. They're just the biggest player in the problem. So if I was able to take over the SS Monsanto, then I need to gain control and I need to gain the, you know, I'm a captain now. Well, if I don't want a mutiny, I need to gain favor with the crew. I need to, So it's a little bit of a politics thing. Now I have to take force with a strong hand and say, this is what we're going to do. Then we were setting a new course. But when you know, my first mate comes up and says, dude, if we set that course and engage way too quickly, the boat's going to go upside down. We're going to die. We're going to kill everything, kill everyone. We're going to ruin this. Then I have to say to my first mate, okay, how do we get there? How do I have the confidence of a leadership team in a company that I've just acquired to change the course of the ship? This is a daunting task. It's not that you shouldn't do it. It's a, You should realize that if, if you're going to justify it with, well, I can change things, this is, and I don't care if it's a 50 person company. This is the way you have to do it. I've been part of companies where people came in and bought the company and said, the old way's out, the new way's in, it's going to be this way. And the best people just went, yeah, well, I don't want to work for you. Goodbye. And the best people can always walk away, the best people can always leave. When somebody tells me, well, I'm stuck at my job and I can't leave. I'm really, really good at what I do. I'm one of the best in my industry, but I just can't find another job anywhere else. Well, you either work in a very specialized industry with one employer or you're full of shit. You're full of shit. You're not the best at what you do. You're not even the top 20% of what you do. Or you're very inflexible in some way. Like I I have to live within this 10-mile radius or something. Or you're in a very specialized industry where there's only one major player in your state or something like that. And so you mean you're geographically imprisoned, so to speak. But the best people can always walk away. If they're willing to move, they can really walk away fast. And they will. They will. And the ones that feel stuck, they're going to be like slaves. They're not going to work hard for you. They're going to do just enough to keep from getting fired. Um, They're going to have you by the curlies because all your good people did leave. So that's the last remaining vestige of the people that know how things work. So they're going to have you six ways from Sunday by the curling hairs, right? So you can't go charging into a company with these, and I've seen it done by buyers, and I've seen it done by people appointed like division heads. I've seen it done by people appointed to like CEO level and things like that, that they try to turn the ship too fast. Even if their vision's right, even if their vision is better in the long term, even if everything they want to do is noble and good and has the potential to even be more profitable, you have to take over a company or a division the way you take over a ship. The crew has become accustomed to a certain rhythm and flow of things, and you have to make the change slow over time for it to work. It's not about compromising ethics and morals. It's about what will work. I think there's a lot of to be learned in this, this concept from you know, politics in general. So... In the end, I want a stateless society. That's what I want. That's my ideal. I want voluntary association to be the way that everything is done. If somebody doesn't want to participate in something, I think the use of coercion and force and intimidation is wrong. I also accept the fact that we live in a place right now where if there was no law enforcement, people would have shit you know, stolen from them and houses burned down and what have you, that we have this messed up society and getting there takes time. So if you handed me the reins of government, I wouldn't immediately disband all government. I I know I can't do that. But I would try to set a course that's almost irreversible toward the dissolution of government and dissolving it to the greatest degree possible with an intent to educate people that it's up to you to keep it going this way and to never be fooled into coming back the other direction again. There's only one way to go now, and that's smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, with the goal being the extinguishing of all statehood. Period. And, and you know that might be a 200-year journey. But I certainly wouldn't just say, you know what? All cops are fired. All soldiers are fired. All elected officials are gone. It just, we're just dissolving the U.S. government. I mean, you can't do that. You can't do that. And immediately you would have a mutiny on your hands. Even if you were the president, right? Even if you were the president. And had the full backing of the legislative branch. If every congressman and senator backed what you said, and you had all the backing of the Supreme Court, and everybody agreed, and they just said, there is no more, it wouldn't work, right? And, and so that's on a grand scale. Milita- you'd have military coup on your hand, you'd have people step in and say, if they don't want to be senator, I'll do it, right? All of the old guard would just show back up and take back over. You create a vacuum. So if you actually wanted. To correct government, had the patience and the stomach for it, it has to be done incrementally over time from a logistical standpoint, from a functional standpoint, and from a safety standpoint. So, you know, all you gotta do is go to Mexico City and see what the alternative is. A halfway disassembly of what we have now without an ongoing effort to make it work and you end up with people being kidnapped left and right. You end up with people being murdered and raped left and right. You end up with, when you go to the police, if you don't pay them enough, they'll side with the bad guys. That's what you end up with. So that's much like buying a company that's engaged in activities that you want to change. So, you know, if you were talking about being... In a situation where this company bought your company, you became part of that group as an employee, it's a different thing than becoming the owner, the captain of the ship, or a co-captain. A lot of times when people are buying a company, you're not buying the company. You're part of a group acquiring the company. Well, that's another issue all to itself. So if let's say there's five of you that are acting collectively to buy this company as a partnership, form a new corporation, and own the assets of the old one. Okay, great. Do you all have the same vision? Because if you don't, you're really in a big, big pile of shit. Right. If, if everybody's like, you know what, this uh, this industrial poultry division is a cash cow, it makes money, we're not trying to save, save the world here, we're trying to make some money, let's leave that the hell alone, let's let's build this company up as quick as possible, make as much money as we can and flip it, and make a big paycheck out of it, or create a long ongoing legacy, pay ourselves all a big salary as owners, or whatever it is, and they don't have any interest in changing the direction of the ship, don't get involved in the mission with them. You either have to have sole control as an owner, or you have to have owners with equal ideals toward the, 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 the end goal. They don't have to agree on the how. In fact, it's better if you don't all agree on the how. Because then you'll sit down and work it out, and you'll come to a much better collective solution. Two heads are better than one. Well, five heads are better than two when they're in agreement on the goal. Okay. If you have five people that agree exactly what to do right from the beginning all the way through and never question each other, you're probably going to end up on the rocks. So having enough of a respect for each other to collectively dissent, but to keep your eye on the prize. What we want to do is move this division of this company into the sustainable side of poultry. Okay, great. Uh, we want to, we, we, we've just decided that that's not viable, and all these other things the company's doing now can be much more sustainable, so we eventually want to wean ourselves off of this and just get rid of that and not do that anymore. Fine. Fine. Both of those could be agreed upon as end goals, or you could say it's one or the other and want we'll to figure it out as we go. Fine. How can be figured out as you get to the ground? Like I said earlier this week, when it comes to running a business, everybody has a plan, in the words of Mike Tyson, right up until they get punched in the face. You buy a company, you're going to get punched in the face. And you're going to get punched in the stomach and you're going to get punched in the balls and you're going to get kicked in the shin. You're probably going to end up with a with a board or two shoved in your ass. It is a tough thing to run a company. Most employees that bitch about ownership have no idea of the burden of ownership. They think all the people in charge have it made. What you find out is every time you get promoted, the level that you thought was a high enough level for it to be easy wasn't. And it was harder after you got promoted than before. And somehow the American worker continues to believe that, oh, just one level higher is where it gets that way. And then you get there and you realize all the people beneath you are idiots. They'd have no idea how hard it is to be you. And generally speaking, in our country, you get get promoted into your lowest level of incompetence rather than your highest level of competence. That's one of the big problems with our system right now. People that really can step up are in such short supply that I'll generally promote somebody, promote somebody, promote somebody, and when I stop promoting them, isn't the level at which they are the most competent, but is the 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 lowest level at which they can be incompetent and still function. So that's where they hit the glass ceiling. And and most of the time, the best thing you can do with that person, though nobody ever wants this to happen, is just pull them one rung back to where they were, so their highest level of competence. We're at the, the optimum level. In other words, I never try to make a sprocket inside a, a machine be a cog. A sprocket's a sprocket, a cog is a cog, right? A valve is a valve. A valve is not a sprocket. And, and in general, what we do is we, we get people that make really great cogs in a machine, and I don't mean that in the insulting way it normally means, and we get them up to a point where they really need to become a sprocket and they just can't. And we force the cog into the sprocket's role and wonder why the machine doesn't work right. Still functions, they're similar enough parts, but... It doesn't really work. It would be much better off to find a sprocket to stick in there, put the cog back where it belongs. That's that's running a company. You have to start seeing things mechanistically that way. It's it's hard to do. It's it's part. I don't like it. It's part of why I run basically sole proprietorships instead of of, of you know going concerned businesses, uh, employee based organizations. I don't want that. I don't want that role. I don't want to have to look at somebody that's really doing their best and go, "Even though you're doing your best, you suck at this, you're fired." And brother, if you ain't willing to do that, you don't want to run a business. You might find a very, you know, you might be the most kind, compassionate asshole in the world, but in the end you have to be an asshole. Because if you're not, you end up, you know, it's it's back to to the prince. Those who refuse to be cruel when they should be end up being cruel when they should be kind something to that effect is the is the 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 phrase from the prince um that we learned about in the the history segment with uh with Alex uh, you know in in the history segment it's 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 where we're at with a lot of things in business too that if you will not get rid of things if you will not cut things if you will not cut programs and employees and demote people and lay people off when you should then you end up having to hurt a lot more people at a later date when you shouldn't have to do that at all. And that all has to be considered with this. This is complicated. Uh, I think we're going we're gonna to wrap here at this point because I've given you as much advice as I can in this situation. But hopefully this helps people that maybe are not in the same situation understand how to evaluate anything you get involved in because in the end, this is edge-based thinking. This is looking at the interactive edge. What are all the moving parts? How does this work? What is the existing situation? So a way to understand this is we talked about education yesterday with Matt Powers, and I said that the the permaculture principles of interactive edge-based thinking and analysis can be used to solve any problem. So the way I would do this here, I would do an initial analysis. Is the company profitable? If it is, how much so, and how does everything work? Where does all the profit come from? What are all the interactions? What are all the edges? Where are all the vendor relationships? What are all the sales relationships? What are all the marketing relationships? What are my customers doing? What are my customers future plans? What does the future look like as this business successes forward? Right? Just like a forest. And then what would I like it to become? And what has to be changed to make that happen? How quickly can that occur? How quickly should that occur? And what does it look like when it's done? Is the company now still viable, sustainable, and, 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 and profitable? And if all of that works out, then this is something I can do. Then I have to decide, based on the amount of work, the time, the effort, and the risk, do I want to assume that risk? Do I want to assume that role? Or do I not? And that's why I I keep saying to you guys that say permaculture is not your thing. Well, can you give me a better way to analyze a business with this kind of a a conundrum, Uh, an ethical and moral conundrum along with the common sense business approach? I don't think there is a better way to examine any issue or any problem. This is the fundamental way to solve problems, to make decisions. Why aren't we teaching this to people? Do you know why? Start applying that formula to government right now. Look at your county government. Just go down to a small piece, not the whole, or your city government, and and apply that edge-based analysis to the city government. You'll come up with solutions that will usually involve looking at all of those weeds that are your politicians and yanking them out, bringing pioneering species in to move forward, successing them out, and coming to a mature state where the people of the city or the county have as little oversight as possible by government. And when governments grow, a goal is always to grow. And your goal would be to pare it down. Why do you think they don't want you thinking that way? It's counter to their best interest. And it's counter to the best interest of the corporatocracy. A people that can think this way become a people impossible to govern because they govern themselves. And I'm going to bring it full circle with permaculture for you right now in a way that most of you have not connected the dots to and A few of you have. And you guys are becoming graduate students if you've already done this. So think for a second if you can get there before I do. Here you go. If you say to me, Jack, I don't want weeds growing in this place. I say that space exists and that space must be occupied with something. So let's figure out what you do want growing there. Let's encourage it to the grow, to grow at such a rate that there's no space, there's no room for the thing you don't want. Well, if you don't want the state involved in your life, you govern yourself to the point of excluding the need for them and leaving them no room. The way we choke out governance is with self-governance, just like we choke out weeds with what we would consider productive weeds that occupy the space so there's no room left for them. This is a universal way of thinking and solving problems. It's not about growing cherries. It's about growing human beings. In the words of Masanuba Fukuoka, the ultimate goal of agriculture is not the cultivation of plants, but the cultivation of human beings. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.